0: I invite you to take a Bible, your own perhaps, or one from under the pew in front of you, and to turn to Hebrews chapter 12. It's on page 1432 in the pew Bible. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 12 through 17. I'll read from verse 12 through 17 now of chapter 12 of Hebrews. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. And make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint but rather healed. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. That no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. That there be no immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. Lord Jesus, these are stunning and sobering words. The Bible is such a blood earnest book, there are no jokes here. There is no playing around. Heaven and hell are at stake and repentance when forsaken and hardened against can become impossible to perform. So I pray for a proper trembling before your word this morning. That none would be cavalier And playful in the way they sit and listen. But that you would now come by your spirit and give us a heart and a mind to understand and to yield. In Jesus name I pray. Amen. I want you to notice the word therefore at the beginning of this text in verse 12. You see it? I hope your version has it. Therefore what that means is that last week's text, which came just before this one, verses 3 to 11, is the basis of what is now exhorted. These are a list of exhortations, about six of them in this text. So, verses 12 to 17 of Hebrews 12 are an inference... Drawn out of and based on last week's text. So let me sum up last week's text, okay? The main point of last week was, The pain and the trouble of your life is not owing to the hatred of God, but the love of God. Verse 6. I want you to look at these verses with me. Some of you weren't here last week, and some of you came away with many questions. And I'm going to try to clarify some. So get the review clear. Verse 6. Those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And the context is persecution. So another way to say the main point is your persecution, your adversity, the hostilities you experience in the name of Christ does not mean that God is treating you as an enemy, but as a son. Verse 7. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. Not enemies, sons. Uh, a third way to say the main point is that your sufferings, sickness I included last week as well, and feel all the more confirmed in that. This week after studying 1 Corinthians 11:30 30 to 32 which you can put in the margin and check out later, sicknesses, adversities of all kinds, are not meaningless and without design, but are designed by God for your good and your holiness. Verse 10. Verse 10. He disciplines us for our good that we may share His holiness. Therefore, let's put it all together. Since the fatherly love of God... Designs your pain and your trouble for your good and your holiness. Therefore, verse 12, strengthen your weak hands and your feeble knees. Since God's fatherly love designs your pain for your good and for your holiness. Therefore, verse 13, make straight paths for your feet and don't meander through the Christian life, but run. Since the fatherly love of God designs your pain for your good and your holiness, therefore, verse 14, pursue peace and sanctification. That is, pursue the holiness that God is pursuing in you. Since, therefore, the love of God is designing your pain for your good and for your holiness, therefore, verse 15, Don't fall short of this grace. Receive it. Don't miss it. And don't let any root of bitterness and presumption spring up and defile the many. And finally... Since God's fatherly love is designing your pain and your adversity and your persecution and your sicknesses for your good and your holiness, therefore, verse 16, don't be like Esau who looked down the road of adversity and sold it for a bowl of cereal. And we are tempted. I got a letter in the mail. I got an email. This week, from a man I do not know, I don't even know what state he lives in, who said, am I an Esau, basically. He described years of walking with the Lord, went to seminary, Reformed Baptist Seminary, was strong in the Lord. And then he said, I let it happen. I started feeling lured by the world and I started, and he put dot, 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 oh, the awful consequence, dot, dot, dot. To doubt. And what a documentation his letter was of his wretched condition. And he was asking me, is there any hope for me? And he had no idea I was going to preach on this text with Esau staring me at the face in the face here at the end. This is not, this is not irrelevant stuff. This Esau thing at the end of this text is not first century stuff. Now, all of these commands, these exhortations, six of them there at least in verses 12 to 16. All of them are a command for us to do something because God is already doing something in us and through us and for us. That's the point of the therefore. Have you got it yet? The therefore at the beginning of this paragraph in verse 12 says, I've got some things for you folks in the church now to pursue, to do, to run, to strengthen, to fight. I've got some things for you to do, but it's all based on something God's doing in verses 3 through 11. Through your pain for you, namely your holiness, your good, your peace, your righteousness. He's after you. He's at work. He's not standing back watching Therefore, don't fail to receive this grace. Don't turn your back on this God because it hurts. We are being commanded not to do things to get God to do things. Get this real clear. We are being commanded in verses 12 to 17 to do some things, not to get God to do some things. We are being commanded to trust that God is doing some things so that we can do the things He commands us to do. Did that make sense? I say it, I'll try to say it again, I'm not sure I can. We are not being commanded to do things in verses 12 to 17 to get God going, to do things for us. We are being commanded to trust what was just taught us in verses 3 to 11 about what God is already doing to help us do the things He's commanding us to do. Namely, be peaceful, be righteous, be holy. God's at work in you. He's saying, join me. I'm working on your life. Join me. I'm working on you. That's the grace. He doesn't want you to fail because God works with scalpels. And it is easy to say, I'm out of here. I'm off this operating bench. It hurts. I'll keep the cancer. Thank you. That's what this man in the letter said. And now he wants it done. He wants it out. And he can't feel it anymore. He can't feel sick anymore. He loves his bowl of cereal. And cannot taste his birthright. This word therefore is real important, isn't it? To get get it right. Therefore, because God's at work in your pain, be strengthened. Be pursuing holiness. Go after peace. Drink in grace. Don't be like Esau and say, to hell with these sufferings. If that's what the Christian life is, then I'll take cereal, thank you. Don't be like Esau. Now, maybe I can get this to stick a little bit for you by answering a question from last week's message. The, the most There were several. The most commonly asked question to me after last week's message was, is the discipline of God in verses 3 to 11 punishment? Here's my answer, and I hope I can show you from the scriptures. No. Okay, that's simple. You can remember that, that answer. <laughs> but now, let me give you the reason Which isn't as simple, but is wonderful. I say no, because this book, Hebrews, and the whole New Testament, teaches very powerfully, very clearly, that Jesus bore the punishment for our sins. Chapter 9, verse 28. Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many so all the people of God who hide in him by faith, their punishment has been transferred off of them onto a substitute, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Like Isaiah 53:5 says, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement that made us whole, He has borne that. So it would be wrong to think, that the pain that happens to us now is God's punishing us a second time for what he laid on Jesus. that makes sense? Punish the sins once in Jesus, punish them a second time in John Piper. Give him a good sore throat or something horrible someday. So I just think, oh. What sin did I do yesterday to get this? That's not the way to think. How should we think? We ought to think that the suffering of Christ for us has changed our suffering into something utterly different from ordinary punishment. Let me use the analogy of the death of Christ. Just as the death of Christ for us changed our death into something radically different. Oh death, where is thy victory? Oh death, where is thy sting? It's gone. Why? Because Jesus pulled it at Calvary. Took the stinger out of the bee of death. So the death of Jesus for us fundamentally alters the experience of our dying. And so the suffering of Jesus for us fundamentally alters the nature of our suffering. It is no longer punishment. Is that clear? There's my answer from last week. It is not punishment. Punishment. Well, what in the Sam Hill is it? You would ask. Because it hurts! And if you ask what's left of punishment, I mean, what's left of discipline after punishment? That component is gone? Well, purifying is left, training is left, deepening is left. Sobering is left. Refining is left. That's why we ended last week's service with the verse from a Foundation. Remember? When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all-sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee. I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. In other words, God's design in discipline is not to hurt ultimately, though it hurts temporally. His aim is not punitive. It is not vengeful. It is not retributive justice. Toward his children is none of those things. And this calls for great faith in the midst of pain. Because everything in us cries out, you don't like me. If you liked me, I would not feel this way. That's what the flesh says. And only faith can triumph at that moment. And faith is sustained by this chapter. I've been so overwhelmed recently by the importance of truth in life. There may be habits of sin that need to be rooted out of our lives. No doubt there are. But the pain of our experiences is is more generally designed to take us into deeper faith and deeper holiness. Now, let me give you some reasons why I think that. Here's the first one. In chapter 5, verse 8 of this book, we read, Although Jesus was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. He never sinned. Chapter 4, verse 15 says, He never sinned. So the Father is disciplining, educating, teaching, training, deepening, focusing His own perfect Son through suffering. And if the Son, how much more we, So that's my first reason for thinking that when it comes, we probably shouldn't look for what yesterday's terrible failure was in our lives to merit today's car wreck or whatever. That's not the way to think about our Father. Let me give you an illustration from Paul's life to show how God does this. In 2 Corinthians 1, 8, and 9... Paul describes an incredibly painful experience he had. He doesn't give us details. I'm glad he doesn't because that leaves it open for us to kind of jump in there with our situation and say, that's me. Here's what he says in 2 Corinthians 1.8. We do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction, which came to us in Asia. So affliction was coming to him, whatever it was. That we were burdened excessively beyond our strength. Have you ever said, God, I can't take any more. It's beyond my strength. That's where Paul is. Beyond our strength. So that we despaired even of life. So his life was threatened somehow. I don't know if he was in prison or if he was fighting with lions or if he got sick or if he was being threatened by hostile people. He despaired even of life. Now here comes the interpretation. What is this? How will the inspired apostle interpret this pain in his godly life? Verse 9. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves in order that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Now, what that illustration shows is that God has a design in Paul's affliction. What is it? Let's read it again. He says, it was in order that. Now, that little phrase, in order that, or that, maybe in your version, that is a purposive conjunction thought as I was preparing this message about writing a star article or something called Godliness and Grammar. Because if you miss these things, you die. You, there's nothing to hold on to if you don't get these things that... I was afflicted, I was at the point of death, in order that... Well, this was not Satan's purpose, believe me. This is not Satan's purpose. Satan didn't want him to rely more on God and less on himself. Satan had exactly the opposite aim, namely, get him to forsake God, shake his fist in his face and say, well, if you don't care for me that much, then I'll just eat cereal, like Esau. This is God's in order that. In order that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. So here's discipline not connected with any particular sin in Paul's life. He didn't say, oh, this came upon me because I had been getting cold in my spiritual life, or because I lied at work, or because I did some sexual lusting or something. He didn't say that. He just said... It happened to me because as God, my doctor, diagnoses me, there's a deeper faith for me and I am willing to be worked on by my doctor. That's all he said. Beyond our strength, despairing of life itself, and the aim is not punishment, but a radical resting in God. Alone for the hope. Now, one more sentence on this illustration, and this gets right to one of your questions last week. One question was if God disciplines us for our holiness, why would He do it all the way to death? Because then there's no time anymore to be holy. And what I see here in this verse 9 of 2 Corinthians 1 is that the last aim of God's discipline in the moment of death, the last aim of God's discipline in the moment of death is simple, humble, childlike trust in the God who raises the dead. Everybody dies. Some at 36 in a tunnel in Britain. And some at 21, 42, 80. And in every case God takes, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And his aim at that moment of testing and discipline is that there would be simple, humble childlike resting in the God who raises the dead so that the last moment of life is holy. Nothing is more holy than sweet, humble, simple, childlike laying of yourselves into the arm of Jesus. My answer then to the main question from last week was, no, God's discipline is not punishment. The whole point is that he's our father. He loves us unimaginably so. He's not looking on passively. He's involved. He's, remember, not the emergency room doctor who's fixing up the lacerations that he had nothing to do with. He's the surgeon planning how to operate successfully and make us more whole than we were before we got cut. Now, why are we told all this? This is more than what a lot of people want to know about God. Why are we told all this in verses 3 to 11 last week? And the answer is, God wants us to be helped by it, to live the Christian life, to run the race. So let's... Move to an end here by noticing the sandwich. These verses that I focused on last week about the discipline of God, say verses 4 to 11, are sandwiched by exhortations to run. Look at verse 1, second half of the verse. Let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So the Christian life is meant to be run, not meandering, not forsaking the way. And then he told us, forsake those encumbrances, shed the weights, shed the sins. The danger of this church we saw in verse 3 was they're getting tired, they're growing weary. You see that? So that you may not grow weary and lose heart there at the end of verse 3. So they're growing weary and they're losing heart. Why? Because it's hard. The discipline of God is hard. Life is hard. There are many tragedies. There's much pain. There's much frustration. So much disappointment in a fallen world that God is orchestrating for our good. It's easy apart from faith to just throw it away and say, I'm tired of it. That's what Daryl told me he did. He just said, I just got tired of fighting for purity. I just got tired. That's what this text is about. And then come verses 3 to 11 saying, don't get tired with all this because God's for you in it. God's at work in it. Don't misinterpret this. You see, theology or truth or understanding, verses 4 to 11, is all for your survival. Some people wonder, What's, what good is doctrine? What good is theology? I can hardly believe anybody would say that. I mean, how can, how can you read a chapter like this? Where it's all revelation of the doctrine of God and how he relates to man in pain and suffering. And say, what good is truth like that? When in fact... It is sandwiched by the very reason it's given, so that you can run, so that you won't lose heart, so that you'll understand what's happening to you. Understanding matters. Evidently making it through a crisis in your life depends on having truth in your head, seeping down into your heart and giving you strength. Now, here's the bottom of the sandwich. Down there in verse uh, 12, where it says, Strengthen. Therefore, because God is this way, because He's doing these things, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. It's the same concern as earlier when he said, You're getting tired, you're growing weary. And here he says, Strengthen the hands. So he sandwiched this truth about God's discipline with exhortations and about warnings about how weary you're becoming and how threatening it is to leave the race. He says, believe these things, understand these things. Now, notice another connection in the sandwich between verse 1 and verse 13. I'm looking at the sandwich here to try to understand how the meat in the middle functions for the bread on either side. Verse 1, it says, run with endurance the race. And verse 13 says, make straight paths for your feet. So you got to run, run the race. And here, make straight paths for your feet. And in the middle is... Because even though when you look down this straight path and you see it strewn with bodies, I mean, it could have been a Christian village in Algeria day before yesterday. You know that. That's happening in the world today. Three new books have just been published on the suffering church. Christians are being hacked. To pieces And that's the discipline of God according to this text. And when you look down the road, and I'm Jesus said count the cost, they came to him and said, Oh, I'll follow you wherever you want to go. And he says, Wait a minute, I got a few stories to tell you. There's an army with twenty thousand people out there. You got ten thousand. You gonna do this? The road that I'm calling you to walk, he says, is strewn with bodies. It's blood soaked, and it's full of opposition and difficulty and pain and trouble. You wanna go? I'll tell you how I'm gonna keep you on the road. I'm on the road. And not one thing happens to you that is not for your good, designed by my omnipotent, all-wise, loving, fatherly care. That's how you stay on the road. And then, finally, he gives just one or two examples of the kinds of things he wants you to do on the road. Verse 14, pursue peace with all men. Be a peacemaker on the road and enjoy peace on the road. And sanctification or holiness, same, same word here, without which no one will see the Lord. Now notice those two words, peace, in verse 14, and sanctification or holiness. And isn't it remarkable that those two words are the words that you see back up in verse 10. God disciplines us for our good. That we may share his holiness. And verse 11. All discipline for the moment seems to be joyful, but sorrowful does not seem to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet those who have been trained by it afterwards yields the peaceful, peaceful fruit of righteousness. Now. Step back, try to sum it up. Since God, in all of His sovereign designing of your adversity, is pursuing your holiness and your peace, therefore, pursue peace and holiness. I'm going to say that again. This is the essence, the structural, conceptual essence of the Christian life. Since God before you, you didn't initiate this, since God is at work, working and pursuing in and through all the experiences of your life, including the hardest ones, since he's pursuing your peace and your holiness, therefore, verse 12, verse 14, Pursue that peace. Join Him in it. Don't fail to obtain the grace that He's working within you. And pursue that holiness. And then the warning. Don't be like Esau. Verse 16. Don't be like Esau. What did Esau do? Esau got hungry. Physically hungry, that is, represented all our normal desires to watch TV, play on the computer, take nice vacations, have a nice house, cut the grass and make the yard look neat, have nice friends, wear nice clothes, be healthy, blah blah blah. He's just an ordinary person. And that hunger got so strong that he traded his soul for it. He sold his birthright for a bowl of pottage, a single meal, it's called here. You know, now here's the warning, verse 17. Even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought it with tears. You can become so worldly and so evil callous to spiritual things and so hardened to God and his treasures and his banquet that when you decide what you're eating is really husks and ashes after all, you can turn and not be able to repent. Don't mistake what this says. It does not say God won't forgive those who repent. God will forgive anybody who repents, no matter what they have done or for how long they've done it. Is that clear? But, if you are toying with sin today, if you have in your back pocket a provision for the flesh, You are playing with fire. Because the day may come when you take it out and you said, yeah, that's poison. And you turn to the banquet, you'll feel nothing of desire. That's what he said in the email. I know my cereal is poison and I've turned and I can feel nothing for God. That's a frightening situation to be in. And this text says, and I say, don't be an Esau. Today, while it is still called today, do not harden your heart, chapter 3. Here's where we're going to close the service. We've been on this for three weeks. These These have been hard messages. I hope good, I hope solidifying, I hope deepening, I hope they get you ready to die and to lose. But here's the way we want to end. In your worship folder, you probably wondered what in the world is that, on the inside flap, let's all do this, let's all tear it off right now. Okay, one, two, three, tear At the bottom there, it says uh, on that dark box, encumbrances, weights, and single meals. That's a reference to verse 1, lay aside the encumbrances, lay aside the weights and sins. And the single meals is a reference to Esau and the one thing for which he sold his soul. And I want us to take about 30 seconds or a minute and quietly pray. God has already been talking to you. Some of you have talked to me about this, about the things in your lives that you need to just basically renounce. You need to say, this is a dangerous thing in my life. It's good in and of itself, but it's starting to kill me. I want you to write it down here. Just put a word, computer game. Or maybe there's a secretary at work and the, the chemistry there has gotten real dangerous. Put her name down. Or maybe it's his, his name. Or there's some other thing, habit, book, place, and they're just warring against your soul. I want you to write it down. I'm going to pray. The worship team's going to sing. We'll stand. And that's the end of the service. And you can either walk that way. Or this way. And these two garbage cans right here are simply a place to throw it in. Don't want your name on this. So that symbolically and maybe decisively in your heart, by walking up here, holding this thing in half with that word on it and throwing it in there, you would be saying that hidden food or that person or that. Place or that habit, I hereby, in the name of Jesus, renounce.